Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week's podcast is about the business of sport and I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Michael O'Keefe of Teneo PSG. Michael, you're very welcome. Thank you, Kieran, as always. Now, later on, we'll be joined in studio by Leinster Chief Executive uh, McDawson, who'll be telling us about the challenges that the province faces on and off the pitch. Uh, but Mick, first of all, we're going to start, as always, with our business of sport wrap. And we had Budget 2019 recently announced by Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Finance and a number of measures uh, to increase funding in there for sport. Yeah, I suppose when you look at um, budget, some you have to kind of extrapolate stuff that's already been widely flagged um, like anything, but also there's some indirect um, knock-on effects for, for sport too in terms of infrastructure. Um, it's been good news for, for sport in, in, in the budget 2019, uh, 13% increase across current capital sports funding, current and capital sports funding, I should say, and a, and a commitment to, to double sports funding from 111 million to 220 million. So, all over good news for, for sport in, in the last budget. Just on that, I mean, this um, 220 million now, is this, is this, this is uh, money that's given to Olympic athletes, it's money given to the GA and the FEI and all of the other associations, is it? Uh, plus capital spending, or is it just money given every year? To the various associations, it's 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 both it's it's both current spending and it's it's so it's carding, it's investment in in participative programs and it's also capital spending. So infrastructural development, we'll hear later on from from Mick Dawson of Leinster Rugby, the likes of the RDS and other facilities developments as well are all included in that. Um, there's other stuff as well in the, in, in the budget the women's, the, the women's the hockey Ireland women's hockey, team women's hockey stuff is in there one and a half million that was promised and it's in addition to the 6.5 there was a bit of confusion unlike Shane Ross um, to have a bit of confusion in this stuff but there was a bit of confusion whether that one and a half was part of the 6.5 it actually isn't and it's additional um, some of the other stuff that's been earmarked the likes of sports grounds which will come to later on a potential cricket stadium um, but also I think from a health perspective are, uh, you know, you have this um, infrastructure, you know, which wasn't in the in the sports um, rump of funding, but cycling and walking infrastructure, um, a huge investment um, uh, there, particularly in urban areas, 110 million things like greenways and so on. So, okay. kind of an indirect impact for sport there. Now, the IRFU mm. announced their strategic plan for this year. This is going to uh, take us out a number of years, and they've set some goals for both the men's and the women's game. Yeah, you know, hugely ambitious um, targets, both both on on and off field, um, and increasing participation and big focus on the women's game. Unsurprisingly, um, you know, there is this uh, hope that Ireland will reach semi finals of the World Cup. I think it's win three Celtic leagues. 
um, and win two European Cups I think it is in the next That's over the next five years In, in, in the next five years and for yeah. the women? Um, and for the women, yeah, and and look, you know, the women's game is obviously still relatively in its in its infancy, but there is an action plan, as I say, um, which you know, it's, it's a little bit of criticism that the bar's been set a bit low, but maybe it's realistic, um, and to move players between. Um, sevens and fifteens, which is a big challenge for for women's rugby. But I think the view is that um, sevens is where the Olympics is at. Isn't sevens it? is where the Olympics is at, and it's where a lot of the bigger um, nations uh, have put a huge amount of, of of funding into. And it seems to be where some people think the future of women's rugby is, whether rightly or wrongly. Um, there has been a big explosion in female sport, as we you know, in rugby as well. Um, and I think it's uh, it, it's good to see that 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 promise of investment. And the Six Nations men's tournament is getting a new sponsor. Yeah, so it looks like there's been there was a lot of strong rumours that that Guinness were coming in as a new sponsor to Six Nations, um, RBS Six Nations, and it was NatWest Six Nations, which was a kind of a temporary measure. New chief executive coming into Six Nations um, would bring a whole new wave of enthusiasm and a new ideas. A guy coming out of um, the NBA, he was head of the NBA in in, in Europe. Um, and uh, HSBC is strongly rumoured now to be the new incoming sponsor of the Six, Six Nations, which will be welcome um, welcome news to them. All right, one of the world's biggest financial institutions, of course. Now, let's talk about stadium developments in Ireland and the UK. Uh, we'll begin at home and Connacht have announced a €30 million Euro redevelopment of the sports grounds in Galway. Yeah, so it's an unusual relationship Connacht have um, with you know with the IGB, the Irish Greyhound Board, um, in terms of kind of a long term relationship there. To I don't know if you've ever been to the showgrounds. It's a lovely little ground, but really it's not fit for purpose for big games. Um, there was talk of them moving to another another ground, but um, they're going to redevelop where they are. Uh, Twelve thousand capacity, uh, primarily seated, new high performance centre, and so on. And obviously will remain a Greyhound Stadium too. Thirty million development, big big investment and a big statement by rugby in the, in, in the west of Ireland um, there are some other um, bits of news there as well in the in the stadia infrastructure piece um, we've seen a lot of talk about Wembley but Liverpool obviously trying to emulate some of their big team rivals like the Manchester United who have a much bigger capacity over 70,000 like the Emirates Spurs obviously move into their new stadia whenever the toilets flush and they're ready to go <laughs> and uh, other teams who have you know that earning capacity of having a bigger ground um, so Liverpool looking to add, as I said, six six thousand, which will bring their capacity to or in around fifty five thousand, and a big investment there. And another interesting one that we saw was um, Wimbledon, uh, the home of of of, of tennis um, in in the UK, uh, looking to to buy a neighbouring golf club so that they can expand and and take in more. more yeah, that would secure the future of Wimbledon, I suppose, which would be a good thing. Um, now, tell me about the twenty twenty female sport initiative. What's all that about? Yeah, so it's it's a brave new initiative um, which has been set up, which is centred around a, a couple of key metrics. Um, one is to increase uh, uh, media coverage. Um, obviously, this whole thing around if you can't see it, you can't be it, and to you know have more coverage in, in media outlets. And there's a number of media partners uh, attached to that. Uh, attendances is an, is another one, uh, and obviously key to this is also participation. And we've spoken about this in the past in terms of um, women's participation in sport falls off a cliff after 18 years of age. Uh, trying to get more people to play, and I think all three are probably related. I think one of the big challenges for female sports is to get people to turn up. I think we've seen, thankfully, the women's soccer team get decent crowds now. The women's rugby team when they're going well. And obviously this big, big attendance is at the... One of the, the problems, though, is getting men in particular, I suppose, to take the sport seriously. 
There's that, but there's also getting, you know, you talk to people in women's sports, to get women to support women's sports is one of the one of the big things as well. Um, the media coverage thing has been a long kind of debate and, you know, there's always this thing in, about quotas and putting, you know, metrics on, you know, and, and you know, is you don't want tokenism either, you know, where, you know, we did a girl worked at us, Sinead Finnegan, who was crying out for the day where she'd be told she played terribly and it was a crap match where you don't have that kind of tokenism where every game in women's sport isn't, isn't, a, isn't a great game. But look, it's a really good initiative. Um, it's obviously starting out there's some big brands behind it and um, the likes of AIG, Lidl I think three are behind it too and a number of other partners so um, it's got off to a good start it got a huge amount of publicity when it when it launched and hopefully they can continue that on um, a couple of other things happening as well in that space there's a what they call a game changer and mentoring network for women which is backed again by, by AIG and a couple of others as well um, which looks at um, high, um, well high profile female business women mentoring young girls who are coming into sport and trying to balance work and sport and that kind of stuff so a lot going on it's something we've covered in at length uh, on this show is female sport and female participation in sport and all very welcome Okay Mick thanks for that we're going to take a short break now when we return we'll be joined in studio by Leinster Rugby's Chief Executive Mick Dawson and he'll be telling us about the challenges on and off the field of play for the European Champions back in a few moments Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to his podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, in 2001, Mick Dawson left behind a career with Davy Stockbrokers to run Leinster Rugby. At the time, the province was transitioning to the demands of the professional era and all the challenges that it brought with it. During his tenure, Mick has overseen the transformation of Leinster Rugby into one of the genuine powerhouses of the European game, claiming four Heineken Cups and numerous other trophies. In his day, Mick played hooker for Lansdowne FC, whom he captained and coached at various levels. And he also managed the Lansdowne first 15s for three years between 1998 and 2001, where he held the position of director of rugby. Now, Mick, uh, thank you for joining us in studio. I mentioned in the intro the fact that Leinster has transitioned majorly over, let's say, the past uh, 20 years from amateur to professional rugby, winning four uh, European Cup titles and and many other honours. Just tell us a little bit about that journey. What's the difference now uh, compared to Leinster, let's say, when you took over? Uh, It's it's huge, really. Um, Back in the day... When I when I started first, I suppose the difference is we thirty players on our books. We've now forty five. We'd no academy. We've now twenty two in the academy. We'd about two coaches. We've now about uh, seven or eight coaches. We were playing our matches in Donnybrook. We've now moved to the RDS. Our offices were located in Donnybrook as well in Porter Cabins, and we've now moved to UCD. So, and I mean, I'd say the number of employees. So the whole structure of the organisation has just has grown really. And uh, back in the day, then. I think the players were probably learning about professionalism and uh, certainly when I started uh, I knew nothing about professionalism and we were, I was very naive so we've we've moved it along uh, a lot since then. So and in, in terms of let's say the financial aspect what's uh, what's the income what's the annual income and the annual outlay for Leinster Rugby? Well we're turning over about 15 million uh, and um, you know on a good year we'll make a small surplus uh, so it's it's a it's a tight ship, and that doesn't include uh, 
four million that uh, the IRFU will contribute toward the cost of the players. So that's that's so you've that's effectively us. nineteen million or, or thereabouts Correct. to play around with. Yeah. Okay. And how much of that uh, comes in terms of let's say ticket sales, people through the turnstiles? How much of it is commercial income or broadcast income? Yeah, our two biggest revenue generators are people through the turnstiles and uh, sponsorship. We also uh, rely heavily on the IRFU who get the dividends from our participation in the EPCR and the Pro 14. And they get the dividends for the provinces and then they distribute money. And also, they also contribute towards the cost of players and towards the cost of some of our coaching. So that's what the central contracting system is all about. And how does Leinster compare with, let's say, some of the English clubs or the French clubs? There was a huge focus a few years ago about the money that was in the French game and the English game and that Ireland, you know, the Celtic nations were going to be overwhelmed uh, as the years rolled by. Yeah, I'd, I would say if you're looking at the balance sheet of Leinster and the balance sheet of some of the big English and French clubs, uh, we'd compare very favourably. I mean, Saracens have a debt on their balance sheet of about uh, 45 or 50 million quid. So... Um, that, you know, obviously it's a different model. They have the uh, the ownership model. We have the similar model to, say, New Zealand or South Africa, where uh, the U- we're, we're very closely tied in with the union. And uh, that's, that's well, it, it seems to have worked. Um, Mick, can I ask you just about the, from a revenue perspective, and we've all become accustomed to the big Champions Cup matches in the Aviva and the big derby games. How important is it, from a revenue perspective, to move some of those games to the Aviva and, and, and the bigger capacity? Yeah, we our model really says we go. We'll take two a year there. So we would take the Munster match, which we did recently. We got over fifty thousand people at it, and we're taking the Bath match in December there. Uh, for our revenue model from our P and L, it's vital. If we didn't take those two big matches there, we'd be down an awful lot of money. And I would think, uh, in fairness to players, it's purely a commercial decision because I would say. If you ask them hand on heart, they might prefer to play in the RDS because it's more intimate. Mm. That's where they play regular. But they understand as well that if we're to keep the ship in the road here, uh, that's a that's an oxymoron. Is <laughs> ship, ship in the road. If we're to keep the ship afloat, showing the road, showing the road. I think <laughs> if we're to keep Shows the ship the afloat. Yeah, uh, we need as much money as possible. We have to retain our players. You need to make sure the facilities are up to scratch and that the coaching staff remain in place. So. Those matches are vital. And in terms of the RDS, and there's been a lot of talk and a bit of stop-start there, And where is that process at at the moment in terms of making that a really world-class venue? We've a 20-year lease with the RDS, which uh, I suppose we're there for about 12 years now. Uh, the Anglesey stand, which is the, the original stand there, is, I think everybody would agree, it's probably not fit for purpose mm-hmm. anymore. So... Uh, between ourselves and the RDS, we've discussed this over the years. I mean, everybody agrees we need a new stand. So we now have full planning permission for a new stand there. Uh, we have a naming rights partner. The RDS are prepared to uh, contribute some of their own monies to the project. So the government have created um, a major capital fund for large sporting projects. And we're waiting for that fund to open. Myself and Michael Duffy, who's the CEO of the RDS, have met an awful lot of... Uh, the government ministers, we've met a lot of opposition, uh, TDs as well. And by and large, there seems to be uh, reasonable support for this. So we'll be applying, but I've no doubt that there'll be many others as well, the GAA, the FAI, they'll all be in there looking for money for this. We need about 15 million quid. And was, was there anything in Rugby World Cup 23 bid that may have moved this process along in terms of had we been successful? Uh, I'm not sure is the answer. Uh, obviously, in the... 2023 bid 
there was the government had committed to uh, funding a number of projects throughout the country to up, upgrade GA Stadium, that sort of thing. Um, the RDS, while it was on their list as one, possibly one of the um, one of the stadia they might use, I'm not sure it would have made the final list. Okay. Now it could have been used for practice. It could have been used to show big matches on big screens. But whether that would have made any, any difference, I honestly don't know. Okay. Can I just ask you, just about, you said that you're going to be looking for about 15 million euro from the government um, to support the redevelopment of the RDS. What will the total bill be? 30. About 30. 30. So okay. we're saying, listen, we've raised, we've raised 50% of it and we're looking for 50% from the government. Now, tradition, uh, if you look at the Aviva, you look at Pogue Park, Parkway Cueve, Thomond, the government helped in all those projects. So we'd hope that... Been uh, and we've had a, a, an economic study done of the impact of the RDS and you know extra crowds and that would only help the whole region as well. And you've lined up Leia Healthcare. I think it's well known at this stage. You've lined up Leia Healthcare as the uh, naming rights uh, sponsor. Well, I couldn't confirm that, but their name is out there, all right. It certainly is. And with a fair wind at your back, let's say, uh, when might this development take place, and when might you be in a redeveloped RDS playing your first game? Well, if we got the money tomorrow. Uh, I think there is a tender process that would have to uh, be go, through, go through, which would take, I believe, about uh, six months, right? So the RDS then, they obviously, uh, they're very proud of their horse show, and rightly so. They wouldn't want to really interfere with that. So I think the project is about a 12-month build. We intend to play there during the build uh, with the stand-down. We're going to put in extra seating in the corners and at either end, and there will be a year of pain for our season ticket holders. So... Let's see, where are we now? We're coming up to Christmas. I would say it, if it could start in September 19, it could be finished maybe for September, October 20, if you could get that. And what difference will that make capacity-wise? And income-wise for, for you guys? About uh, an extra 3,000 in the Anglesey stand. But at the moment, uh, the Anglesey stand holds about four, four and a half. It's just there's pillars there, the seats, mm-hmm. you can't see the pitch. Some of the seats are at the end of the dead ball area. So this will be, it would really, I think it would reinvigorate us and give us a new, uh, a new revenue stream from that stand because there'll be corporate facilities in there, premium seats, boxes probably, you know, so it would just lift the whole place. And how much might it add to your revenue stream, let's say, uh, presuming it all goes to plan and, you, you know, you put in place you all to, of the You have to fill the seats, Karen, and you of have course. to make sure the team are doing well. <clears throat> yeah. So we've done lots of modelling on it. Uh, but I mean, You'd hope, and I don't want to give my hand away here because the RDS will be looking to charge me more rent if we tell them how much we're going to make extra out of it. Um, you know, significance, I would say, significant sum of money extra would be there, which is what we need at the moment because we're kind of maxed out in the art. Now, obviously, for some of our matches there, you could fit more people in, but we have these very loyal season ticket holders. So the walk-ups aren't as big an issue for us as they might be for other clubs at the moment. And, uh, you know, we look at the two Aviva matches, say, would you still stay there if the RDS was was really flying and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of decisions to be made down the road. Mick, just on wider stuff, and there was a lot of coverage in the newspapers the last couple of days about RFU's strategic plan and some very lofty ambitions in that. What's your initial reaction to the strategic plan and 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 the content of it? Well, I read it like yourself yesterday uh, with interest and um, I suppose if you've got ambition, uh, you know, you're going to have lofty plans. And I mean, the one thing about you can you can have a vision and you, you have to work really hard in between and to put the plan in place. So I would say we'll be working very closely with the union to see what they want us to do, particularly in the area of 
game development on bo- on the amateur side, both men and women, I think that's an area that really needs attention because what's happened <clears> is you've got it, and I think it's the same in a lot of sports, you know, a huge competition from the GAA, the FAA, FAI, and people now, uh, the whole dynamic has changed. When guys leave school, there's a huge pressure on them. You've got uh, fellas get married young, they've got wives are working and that sort of thing so it's not as easy to play so I think retention of players over 18 is a huge problem right yeah. uh, in both in particular in the men's amateur game and I think the women's the women's game well I think at, at the top end it's well catered for uh, the middle ground is probably lacking a bit because they haven't the game is only in kind of evolving mm. and I think they ha- it has to grow from the mini rugby through the schools and that sort of thing so but it is growing so in 2010, we'd no girls schools, no girls schools teams. Now we've 64. So there is an there is an interest in it, but I think you have to start from the bottom up and work your way through the system. Yeah, and just on that, it like there's obviously this oft quoted argument around the winners and losers in Irish rugby over the last 25, 30 years, and the club game, and obviously you've a big heritage with Lansdowne Rugby Club and stuff like that. So where do you sit on that player development pathway and having players released back to? AIL clubs as they are now and what's the best model in your view of, of doing that in order to give emerging academy players as much game time as possible Yeah I'm a big supporter of the AIL and I would go to a lot of matches uh, purely from an interest point of view I'm not involved anymore but uh, we were big fans of the British and Irish Cup we felt that that bridged a gap between the uh, the Pro 14 and the club game and uh, so this year we've played in the Celtic Cup it's now finished mm. and it has been it has been a great success and there's huge exposure for the younger guys early on. We would like to see an expanded Celtic Cup really. I don't I don't personally believe in professional contracted players going back into the AIL where the I think the AIL has been very good for the the academy guys and some of the development guys, but I don't really see it as a vehicle for professional professional rugby players. And I don't think the professional players want to play in that environment either. They're contracted. They believe they've moved up to a different level and that's the level they should be playing at. Okay, and, and just on, on the same point, and you kind of mentioned it earlier on, and it's been a, a criticism of, of rugby in Ireland around the playing base and widening the playing base. And I know there has been some work done in this, but you know there is a traditional school system, but there is a whole population out there who maybe don't go to what are deemed traditional rugby schools. What's your view on trying to widen that playing base, particularly at a younger age and perhaps a deeper investment in, in, in clubs at that kind of, you know, 10 to 16 year old where you might capture players who don't necessarily go to a Ternure or a, or a Belvedere College Oh listen uh, Philip Lawler is uh, our domestic rugby manager and he does a phenomenal job in trying to broaden that base the school you couldn't you couldn't pay for the school system we have in Dublin private school system their energy their enthusiasm their commitment to the cause their amount of money they spend on rugby is phenomenal but there is a wider audience out there as well and this is where Sean O'Brien and Tyke Furlong came for and so we really have to support uh, the clubs and the volunteer base so what you, what we really need to do and what we've invested in is, is coach development officers so people to help volunteers learn how to coach the main most important thing in rugby is facilities and coaching so if you take your young fella to the under 8s he has to have an enjoyable experience because he'll go to the GAA club the next week and if it's a better experience, that's where he'll stay. So we need to coach the coaches. So like we've got about 170 or 80 people working in Leinster now and 60 or 70 of those are all in... in, uh, in uh, development of the game and players so we help the schools but the schools 
uh, don't need as much help as the clubs because they're very uh, they're, they're self-sufficient but they do need help so we want to have coach development officers or rugby development officers in as many clubs around the country as possible uh, so on that we're trying to build uh, in Leinster five centres of excellence one in Dublin Leinster's divided into five regions the metropolitan area the north uh, the northeast the midlands the north midlands and the southeast and we want to have uh, a high performance unit in each one of those uh, areas so that young guys don't have to travel to Dublin to get the experience or get the ball in their hand. I mean, a fella at 15 playing in Nace or Mullingar or something mm-hmm. is generally as good as a fella at 15 in Black Rock, but the fella in Rock just gets more exposure to it and he he develops quicker. So we, yeah, so we need to make sure that we can get people to these other guys who are keen and interested. And uh, all the time, you're, as I say, you're competing with the other sports because the chances are, young fellow from the country, if he's good at rugby, he's good at Gaelic and good at soccer as well. Yeah. And Mick, I think it's widely acknowledged that Leinster have been fantastic at producing young talent, but they can't all play for Leinster. Obviously, there's only 15 spots uh, on the team every week. So, and you know, we've seen a number of them um, leave for other provinces and Ireland, Joey Carby being a, a, good, a good example, Nick McCarthy uh, recently being another. So, this centres of excellence idea uh, sounds great, and it's obviously going to probably your hope will be that it'll produce more talent. But I'm just wondering: are a lot are are a lot more players from the Leinster setup uh, going to end up having to go to other Irish provinces, or maybe even to the UK or France to get game time? Um, well, we're going to we're going to continue to drive uh, our ambition uh, as hard as we can. That's to get as many kids playing rugby as possible, and to get as many kids through the system into the into the professional game as possible. So, uh, I suppose we have a dual mandate. Uh, I would see my role uh, and our role in Leinster as producing really good players for Leinster. So, some of the guys through circumstance. Uh, I mean, you've got uh, like Brian Driscoll and Gordon Darcy saw off a generation of Leinster centres. Dave Quinlan, uh, who went to England, and uh, others who, who had to move on. So I think if you're doing your job well, and because we have an advantage with the numbers, and I think we also have an advantage with some really good people who are looking after this, some guys are going to move because they see opportunities elsewhere. Like we didn't want Felix Jones to go. We didn't want Andrew Conway to go. We didn't want Nick McCarthy to go. But they went and good luck to them. And I think we're probably going to see more of it. And I think we probably saw... Uh, we probably thought that maybe the English clubs would be the ones who'd be the 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 coming uh, to take take these players, but I think more and more the other provinces um, see 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 these ready made players, and uh, you know if they're ambitious, they go. Yeah. So I wish them well. I do think the provincial identity and some of the other provinces could be lost if they have too many Leinster players in their setup. Uh, we think that uh, the provincial identity over the years has been one of the strengths of the provincial game in Ireland and uh, because you're from where you're from. But uh, listen, the game is evolving all the time. Yeah, sure. And in terms of keeping some of your stars at home or bringing them home in the case of Johnny Sexton, you've been fortunate, I guess, in that you've been able to draw on resources from some uh, benefactors. Um, And Dennis O'Brien has been uh, mentioned in relation to a number of players. How important is that for Leinster Opia and how does it help you bridge the funding gap, if you like? Well, you know, people like Dennis O'Brien and and others who uh, who've made 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 a lot of money have been have been helpful to us. 
you you can't that. But I think we've got to we've got to work very hard to maintain our own independence and so forth. You can't be relying on handouts. We've had it. We've experienced a bit of philanthropy in the past, but I think you have to be. Uh, some of our sponsors has helped us out as well. But I think the new stand in the RDS would be help us just to raise it to another level. But all the time you're just you're competing to make sure that these gun guys who are putting their bodies in the line every week are well looked after and that they're not tempted to go to go overseas. I mean, we've also got the big help. The Charlie McCreevy refund money is, is a huge help at the end of the day. Just a tax break effects for the players effect. when they come to the end of their careers, yeah. yeah. And is Dennis O'Brien, is he, is he still involved in helping you fund some of these uh, contracts? I know Dennis has only been involved in one and he's been very generous and he is, yes. Yes, right. Okay. Um, can I ask, Mick, is there ever going to be a time where um, the ownership structure of Leinster would change? Uh, I know it's a very open question, but, you know, we had talk there a number of years ago, particularly with Toulon and others who seem to be out, you know, spending and, and, and so on. Um, and while the model has worked so successfully, it, will there ever be a time where that it might change in the, from, you know, 100% ownership from the union to a slightly different model? Well, I don't think in our time the essence of what Leinster is about will change in the sense that I think we're always going to be charged by the IRFU with producing Irish players who go through the Leinster system which are available for Ireland, right? So I don't think you're ever going to see a situation where you've got 10 or 11 foreigners yeah. who aren't available for Ireland uh, playing for Leinster. That's not going to happen in, in, in uh, my lifetime anyway. Uh, I don't think the... We've looked at the uh, private ownership thing and we've looked at... They tried it in New Zealand... The union here, uh, the central contracting is what the union want because that gives them control of the players. And that's the same, same in New Zealand. So they brought in, so like you're bringing in an investor, he doesn't really own the players, he doesn't really own anything. Mm. Uh, it's nearly bringing in a philanthropist and give him a place in the board. So I just, we've looked at it a lot, but I just, I, I just don't see it happening in the short term. Okay, and just in terms of some of the factors that you're discussing around, like extra capacity in the stadium, sponsorship, so on. Is there, a, is there a view on, on that the, the Pro 14 in particular needs to expand to bring in new audiences and bring in new revenue? Like, has it become a bit static? Like, obviously, we have the South African teams and be interested to get your view on success or otherwise of that. But, you know, is there a time now to look at an East Eastern Seaboard US franchise, you know, bringing in a new audience, bringing bigger TV, bringing bigger sponsorship revenue, and how might that impact the finances of, of, of Leinster? Yeah, I mean, the Pro 14 is our bread and butter. We play 11 home matches in the Pro 14. We play three in the uh, in the EPCR. So it doesn't take a genius to work out the the revenue flows. Uh, the Pro 14 is um, has has struggled because you've got three small economies, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. So, I mean, we've only got about 15 million eyeballs. They have 55 million eyeballs in France and the same in the UK. So from a television point of view, you're always going to struggle in that regard. Uh, now, obviously, we have the Italians in there who have a huge, uh, huge population, but most of them aren't interested in rugby. So, you, you know, it's a slow burner, but the Italians are there at the moment and they've brought quite a bit, a bit of money to the party. The South Africans uh, are in a year. We're at their second year with them. They brought a lot of money to the party as well. Uh, I think the US thing is probably off the table for the moment because I don't know how you'd play a game against, between a New York team and a Cape Town team you know, yeah. uh, so that's where the struggle is. So, and also the travel, the travel is much easier north south than east west. Yeah, uh, and this is why the South Africans have actually liked coming up, and we all got extra revenues from the South Africans. The problem with the South Africans is, uh, at the moment, is their teams aren't as competitive as they should be, mm. and secondly, the South Africans. Um, 
I mean, the rugby population, uh, they're not really sure Leinster could be in Wales or Scotland. They don't really know an awful lot about it. Like, they watch the Six Nations and they know what's happening there, but there's a kind of an arrogance down there that's still better, better than everybody else. Uh, now, apparently the television thing has worked quite well, so uh, their people are viewing it, but they're still not getting the people through the turnstiles. Interesting. And just to change tack slightly, um, Mick, on, on um, you know, Leinster have been fortunate, I suppose, and produced some superstars over the last kind of 15 to 20 years and probably that second generation of, of professional players, the Brian O'Driscolls and Gordon Darcy's and so on. Um, and just to ask that question around um, how much of an emphasis do you take or put on um, helping these fellas transition out of sport um, and what systems do you have in place to help these guys from a mentoring perspective and the Europa's role, Leinster Rugby's role, so that these guys when they come out of the bubble that is Leinster Rugby of, you know, you have your schedule on a Monday, <laughs> your travel's sorted out, your socks are hung up for you to kind of going out to the big bad world and the, and the issues that, could, that that can happen there. Yeah, well, I think it starts, it starts, it starts really in the academy uh, and uh, we're very lucky that, number one, an awful lot of these guys come from the socioeconomic background where their parents actually want them to do well, want them to continue studying and so forth. So we have an academy board. So when we're bringing a guy into the academy, we would bring in, uh, so this guy's 19, his first year of school, bring his parents in, and we would we would insist that he does third level in a trade and we would try and emphasise the importance of it because you're one bad injury away from not being able to play mm-hmm. or you're, you might be good enough. Uh, and the great example is we had a young fellow who was a hooker he was from Gonzaga and he'd done four years in the academy he's 22 years of age and the next thing he was told that his uh, he had a, some sort of a congenital hip problem but he's a qualified physiotherapist so like he's playing golf and he's playing tennis but can't play contact sports so it's vitally important and we can't emphasise it enough uh, that they get their degrees and UCD where we're based have been very very good so if you're doing a big calm and you're struggling uh, as an elite sportsman, they'll get you through in four years as opposed to three, but they'll get you through. And then a lot of the older guys, as 27, 28, they go back and do masters. And So we'd be very, and Rugby Players Ireland are very supportive in that area as well. Like some of the guys, I think, actually, uh, they struggle uh, not so much uh, as getting a job as just They've they've lost a way of life yeah. because they've, as you rightly say, they get a sheet. They're told what to eat, what to wear, where to be, what to do, and uh, some guys quite like that. Yeah. And Phil- when you're out in the big bad world, someone says you have to get your own passport and find a driving license. Well, famously, Philip Neville, <laughs> yeah. the former Manchester United player, is now the England women's uh, team manager in football. He said he didn't know how to make a cup of tea um, when, <laughs> when he retired. But anyway, um, like what? the business editor of the Irish Times, then, <laughs> certainly not. Um, <laughs> Mick, can I just ask you about the role of agents in rugby? Because we know in soccer, they earn a lot of money. They have a big influence uh, on players moving around. Uh, sometimes they're seen as being a, a malign influence. Um, what's it like in rugby? How does it contrast? Well, first of all, there isn't as much money around. So uh, there's not as many. Sh- Listen, there's, it's, it's like every walk of life. There's some good guys and there's some guys you prefer not to have to deal with. Um, by and large, the rugby players honour their contracts. Uh, and they stay and then the agent comes in and asks for more money and that, it's just kind of part of the game I'd much prefer to give the money directly to the player if he came in negotiating himself uh, as opposed to pay an agent but they're there some people don't like the face to face of dealing with themselves which is understandable uh, and as I say there's good guys and bad guys around the place you know Mick tell us how you came to uh, head up the Leinster Rugby operation because you were previously a stockbroker with Davy. just very lucky <laughs> I had done uh, 
I always say it's better to be lucky than smart in life. But I had done uh, 20 years in Davies and I was 48 at the time and I was saying to myself, they were kind of getting tired of me, I think, and I was getting tired of it. So I had a wonderful time there and I just was looking for something else to do. And um, this job came up uh, and uh, the year before it came up, a year before, and I went for it and I didn't get it. And uh, the guy who got it, uh, he moved on after a year and I went for it a second time and I got it. And it was only when I got the job that I realised that as a stockbroker, as a salesman, which you were effectively working for yourself, how unprepared I was for professional sport and the 24-7 of it. I mean, I was, via, I was involved in club rugby and I would have been well known, you know, in the clubs and that sort of scene. But um, it really, it was an eye-opener. And uh, I think Gareth Fitzgerald, the Munster CEO, said to me, he said, come back to me in 24 months and see if you know, if you know everything that's going on. And he was right. It's, it's, it's a different, different world. And uh, so I was unprepared for because I didn't have to manage people in the past. Now you have to manage people and so forth. So, yeah, I was just lucky. And was there anybody uh, that you sort of admired uh, or anybody anybody's style that you tried to follow or did you just have to make it up as you were going along? Uh, I, I have to admit I was kind of making it up as I went along uh, and uh, as I got more into it I realised I better get a bit of system on this place and that sort of thing. So it, um, yeah, no, I didn't, I wasn't modelling myself on, on anybody. Uh, I was kind of, you go in, you're a bit in awe of the thing and... Uh, like we were, I suppose we were all a bit naive at the time. And uh, like at that time, the seat, there was no, there was no numbers in the seats in Donnybrook. So you didn't know how many people could actually get into the stand. So you could arrive with a stand ticket and they'd say, sorry, the stand is full. So, you know, it was just different. The players were learning, learning to be professional, kind of living the life as opposed to amateurs getting paid. And Matt Williams was trying to instill that in them. And I, we realised really that it was off the pitch that we needed to change the whole thing. So ultimately, like moving from the RDS, or moving from Donnybrook to the RDS, all that was a kind of evolution, dealing with the sponsors, getting season tickets mm. out. You know, there was a whole evolution. But I mean, I, I, just, I didn't have a master plan when I started. I was, it was, took me a while to get a hang of the thing. And how would you describe your leadership style now? Uh, I would say, I'd say, I think I'm fair. Uh, I think I like to treat people the way I'd like to be treated. Uh, I'd be a good delegator. So I believe that uh, you bring good people in uh, and you let give, give them their head. So we have a lot of young people working in our place who actually, and the turnover in the admin staff has been reasonably high because of the fact that it's a fairly flat organisation. So if you come in as the ticket sales officer, well, that's what you are. You you can't go anywhere else so um, so it's, it's a good learning curve give people a lot of and a lot of people have moved on to to bigger and better jobs so it's uh, so fair and a delegator <clears throat> Mick you just closing up now in a, in a couple of minutes but just on the you know you've been there for two decades now kind of could you pinpoint us kind of two or three of the major standouts for you highlights over the last number of years in terms of your time at Leinster I think moving to the RDS I think that was a seminal moment because it changed the it changed the whole financial dynamic of what we were doing, and uh, in actual fact, it, we you know we said uh, we moved to a bigger stadium, but so uh, actually supply created its own demand, which was kind of is is the reverse of what it normally is. So what it showed us really was that people actually wanted a bit more comfort, wanted a place to stay, and that while standing was great and drinking pints in the rain was great fun, 
not really what people what real people what people actually wanted. And the other big, I would say, the other big move was moving from uh, from our offices across the road in Donnybrook mm-hmm. to uh, to UCD, where we're in a, a modern building. When you walk in, it looks like you're in a place of some substance. Uh, so I think those were the two biggest things in my time. On the pitch, well, on the pitch, like. It's great you get a bit of credit for it, but at the end of the day, it's really down to the players and the coaches. So obviously, listen, I've had a great run. We've won, having won the Celtic Cup, we've won 13 trophies in the professional era. We've won 3A, 3A competitions, four, what is it, four European Cups. What's the one that stands out? Is it Cardiff, Northampton? What's the one that really kind of... I think no. I think Edinburgh, Leicester. That was break. That was that was. Yeah. I think the big the biggest match. I think was beating, uh, like beating Munster in, in Croker, mm. uh, was kind of and everybody thought they just had to turn up that day. But actually, to win that match and then to be able to actually go on and not use that match as we've achieved our goal after mm. to win the final. So I would say Edinburgh was probably the best. And last question for me is just and again the reverse of that is, what's next? You know, what's your you know, if you want to, what's the, what's in the future for you in terms of the next five five years or so? Not that I'm retiring. Five years, five years, make five years. <laughs> sure, if we get five years, uh, I think the two things we're tr- the two things we're trying to do is build these centres of excellence, and we've started building one in Donnybrook. Uh, we're building it down at the old Wesley End, about six thousand square feet, gymnasium, offices, all that sort of stuff, and. Uh, Get the other, get the other centres of excellence throughout the province, and then, and again, it won't be an awful lot. But I'd love to be there when we get the new new stand in the RDS. So they'd be the two big things off the pitch. Like on the pitch, it's just constant. Keep retain your players and make sure get your best, keep the best coaches, and that just that never really changes. And Mick, I, well, I was going to ask you, you sort of look out 10 years and how do you see the landscape for Leinster? Are they still going to be, are they going to be sort of regular uh, champions of Europe? Are they going to be regular winners of the Pro 14 or whatever follows on from that? Uh, are we going to see a situation maybe in the future like Leo Cullen, I know, was a bit tongue-in-cheek where he said uh, there could be 15 Leinster players on the on the Ireland uh, team? Um, I would hope that the systems we have in place now... Uh, uh, and the people we have, and we'll get obviously there'll be a bit of churn on people. We'll continue to unearth uh, the good schools players, uh, and I think as alluded to earlier on, broaden that kind of a reach into, into the youths game and try and upscale more guys because there's certainly there's a great edge to the country fellas, um, and uh, you know also the, the the recruitment of we have. What, four overseas players. So all the time, we only have four. It's very, very important that they are quality. And obviously, they're always good. there's always rugby quality, but also that they, they fit into the environment. And uh, that's hugely important. You know, can it, can it go on? I, it's, it's, it's a model that's worked and it's a model that other people are looking at as well. I mean, we, we were down to Toulouse the weekend and they said... Uh, they tried the big money signings and and they are actually going back to first principles again. They wanted to get more local lads into the team. And um, so I think if sugar daddies, if sugar daddies, some of them, if they get tired of the game as such, that's the end of it because who's going to underwrite it anymore? So you need a model that's sustainable. I think at the moment we have a model that's sustainable, but all the time, like you're chasing more money all the time to keep the show on the road. But we're putting an awful lot back into the game to make sure that kids are coming through the system as well. 
All right, Mick Dawson, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Mick Dawson of Leinster Ruby for joining us in studio. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Research was by Dan O'Neill and Kieran McSweeney of Teneo PSG. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Mick O'Keefe. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.